0: Hello, listeners and movie lovers. This is Jenny Curtis, producer of Hollywood Unscripted. We hope that you are staying safe and healthy. While we are on a season break, we will be bringing you a series of specials throughout this time. We ask that you forgive the audio quality as we are all recording from home on whatever technology is available. And we hope that bringing you more conversations with the creatives you admire can help brighten your days in this trying time. So without further ado, we present Hollywood Unscripted, Stuck at Home. From Kurtzel Media.
1: There's no place like Hollywood.
2: Welcome to a special edition of Hollywood Unscripted, Stuck at Home edition. I'm Scott Talal, Executive Director of the Malibu Film Society, and today's guests are actor Don Cheadle and showrunners Jordan Cahan and David Kast from the Showtime series, Black Monday. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Hi. Glad to be here. We're recording the show April 1st. It's the third week of California's stay-at-home order, and I just wanted to ask, how's everybody holding up right now?
3: Pretty good. I mean, considering everything, I, I don't think I got the Rona. I, I, I couldn't say for sure, uh, obviously, because people can be asymptomatic and still be carriers. But everybody who I've sneezed on to see and to test has not come back positive. So pretty good over here. There's
4: not a lack of testing in your home. You've sort of developed your own test.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think when you're in the field, as I am, uh, we all are, but you, I'm in my own petri dish. You have to do what you have to do to practice safe mean, And so that meant I have to try to transmit it, see if it comes back. I'm doing a little science on my own.
4: We're hanging in. I mean, obviously there's so many people in such a worse situation than the three of us you're asking that question to. So we're super fortunate to even have the option of just like, how are we hanging in and like uh, work from home, be with our families kind of situation. Like there's obviously so many people in such a worse situation. It's just the darkest time we've experienced in a while and our hearts go out to uh, everybody.
1: I would say for me, the one thing that I'm enjoying, um, in this difficult time is I get to sit with my daughter who's in third grade and teach her math. And that's been really nice. When we shoot Black Monday, we're on a pretty rigorous schedule. We're doing long days and stuff. So it's kind of been, uh, not that there's any silver lining to this, but uh, it's been nice to teach math fractions.
2: So, you know, this is obviously an odd time for everybody.
4: Trump seems unbothered. It, it doesn't seem like that out of a time for,
3: It was pretty startling to watch the press conference yesterday and hear Fauci speaking about if we do this perfectly, we could maybe get between 100,000 and 240,000 deaths. Like if we do it great. I mean, I really hope Americans are ready to all pull together and do it great. But like we were talking about, you know, people are still congregating on beaches and having church revivals. and, And a lot of folks are acting like because they don't have it, there's no problem that they can perceive that they have it because they're asymptomatic. So Yeah, it's a a very interesting time and a very interesting time to be doing a show called Black Monday (laughs) with the stock market doing what it's doing and, you know, what we're looking forward to. But I think it's also a perfect time for it because who doesn't need a break from all of this to just laugh at the ridiculousness of it?
2: David, I I read an interview, some of the um, pre-season two publicity that you were doing. And you were talking about how you could theoretically take this show into the 90s and then into the 2000s, right up until the 2008 crash, and then even beyond until the next crash. And of course, this was several weeks ago when you said, of course, that's. Assuming we don't have a catastrophe before the next crash. Well, we got both. Yeah,
4: I know that. Yeah, thanks
3: a lot, David. Good oh, job, buddy.
4: Uh, yeah, that's that sounds like a drink. Yeah, I mean, look, I think we'll all keep going as long as they'll let us, right? We had initially chosen the Lehman Brothers because we started writing this a little right after that '08 crash, and Lehman Brothers went under, which was so crazy. So we just thought, like, wouldn't that be funny if the two villains in the show are the Lehman Brothers, the actual brothers, and then then of course we made them twins that. So may or may not be having sex with each other so it's it's divorced from reality a little bit but um yeah we always sort of imagine that the whole series would end in 08 you know But who knows?
1: Yeah, it's strange that we've had like four Black Mondays in the past two months or something.
2: Exactly, yeah.
1: The timing is incredibly bizarre.
2: We've got, obviously, the showrunners, the writers and the session, as well as Don, the actor. But for the writers, writers can write at home. Actors, what do you do at home during this time?
3: It's interesting. I have a script that I, you know, that (laughs) I have been working on for the past season. I have a production company, so we're still having meetings around things, which is very interesting, you know we were talking before we went online about zoom stock zooming through the roof right now probably but yeah i had two projects that we were just getting ready to start this would have been day three for me on the set and one of them so oh
1: really
3: yeah can you say which one though? kill switch it was a steven soderbergh movie we'll see if it comes back Uh, who who knows and i think that's where everything is for everyone right now piggybacking on what david said i'm not crying, poor me, because I believe when everything comes back, we'll have the ability to go back to work, hopefully. I don't know how far we're going to have to be staying away from each other. It's going to be very interesting to be doing scenes if you have to stay 10 feet away from your scene partners.
4: The second it's someone else's coverage, you leave anyway, so it's That's kind of true. perfect,
3: right? I don't stay for off camera. Thanks for, for letting Scott know that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I barely stay for my own coverage.
1: <laughs> it's just the back of your head most of the time. <laughs> yeah,
3: that's all contractual, though. That doesn't have to do with me. That's agent stuff. Oh, that's yeah, fun. yeah. But I, I think we just hunker down and try to get ready for when we can come back and do stuff. I mean, it definitely gives us, gives us the opportunity to do tons more research. You know, I'm reading a ton of stuff. So there you go.
2: How many of you have kids at home? Because, Don, I know that
3: you and Bridget have a couple. Yeah, they're out. Thankfully, they left last year. We finally got them out of the door. (laughs) They're 11 and 14, but they're a very mature 11 and 14. (laughs) Jordan?
1: I have a five-year-old and an eight-year-old.
4: I have like two and a half and four and a half.
2: Wow. So you're in the thick of it, my friend.
4: You know, it's funny because you, and I mean, not to get like weirdly melodramatic, but obviously, always in life, there's things that give you a bunch of perspective. And man, this is a perspective thing I don't think any of us saw coming. I mean, this is insane. I mean, just across the board, everything, like what a luxury it is to leave your home. You know, how hardworking the people are who teach your kids or watch your kids if you have two working parents or whatever. I mean, and the list goes on. It's hundreds and hundreds of things
3: Are your kids wondering why you encase your home so much?
4: Honestly, they're in the best moods I've ever seen them in. And I think it's just because they love that we're around all the time. And I have definitely been home for every dinner in a way that I never was before. Because you remove all the travel time and so many of the deadlines have relaxed in a way that I'm able to kind of have dinner with them, which it's been really nice. But there's also this like underlying dread that I'm sure we all feel of like why it's happening is so dark and heartbreaking. It's just horrible. You know, it's just horrible.
1: I will say that speaking specifically about the show, when we're in the thick of it in the show, no matter how much fun we're having, and I think we could all agree we have a great time on this show and we're incredibly fortunate that everyone on the cast crew is so awesome, but it's still a grind. You're still, I mean, David and I and Don, you're still working 18, 19, 20 hour days some days. And in the middle of a season, when you're trying to edit and you're running from stage to stage and setting up shots and making sure everything's okay and putting out fires, you feel that grind. And I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it now, now that I'm not doing it. Honestly, we are so immensely fortunate. Well, your kids hate you. That's true.
4: I'm lucky that my kids are in preschool, so there's not really like a lesson plan or anything. So. I'm not having to teach, which seems brutal. It's
2: interesting because talking about family, the show had so many family connections. I mean, your wife, Casey, plays Tiffany Georgina, and her comedy writing partner, June Raphael. June Diane Raphael. Yeah, plays Corky Harris. Her husband is Paul Shear who's yeah. also on the show. It seems like a nice, big, happy family.
1: Yeah, it goes way beyond that. Don's wife, Bridget, is the wife of a Black Panther friend of his. She's in episode three. Our costume designer, Melissa her husband played the private investigator in season one and season two.
4: Chuck Watkins, who plays Congressman Harris, which is Blair's love interest this year, is Andrew Rannell's boyfriend in real life.
2: So you're saying their chemistry is genuine.
1: Oh, yeah,
4: absolutely. Oh, uh, Yasser Lester, who's on the show and also writes for the show, in that episode four that he wrote, his girlfriend Chelsea Devantes is in that episode. She runs up asking Regina for a photograph at the beginning.
1: June's sister Deanna was, or is racially profiling her in season one and then joins the TBD group in season two.
4: Our writer, Amelie Gillette, who wrote episode two, her, Husband is a guy named Mark Proach. He plays the bank manager that Cheadle and Shear were in all that stuff with in the shootout episode.
1: Also, Janelle James <laughs> who is a writer on our show, is is one of the women in the office. We have Bridger, who is a writer on our show, and he plays the concierge of the hotel that Mo lives at.
4: And his boyfriend plays, in episode five, he plays a prison guard.
3: So nepotism basically is what you're talking about. I mean, he, this started off like family and then it just turned yeah. into, we only hire our friends. It's
1: even easier than that. It's if they're within arm's reach, we yeah. use them on the show. <laughs> yeah.
3: and I'm in the show. I'm sorry. What did you say? <laughs> Sorry. I, I just took it back to me for a second.
1: Yeah, let's kind of get it back to what's important.
2: It's obviously not endemic to Hollywood. It's it's all business. You want to surround yourself with people who know will do a good job.
1: It's part of the fun of it for us at least is working with people we know and love, but also people who are so immensely talented. I mean, I don't know if we ever would have landed June without her being married to Paul. She's so good. Or getting Bridget to come on. Like, it, it's really, we're, again, we're immensely fortunate on this show. Every time I think about the show, I'm like, man, we got lucky there. We got lucky there. We got lucky there.
2: Well, the casting's been amazing. Let's let's go back to the beginning of this, the genesis, because as I understand it, you actually were trading emails and conversations about this as far back as 2007.
4: Very long time, and then we sold it to Showtime, and we wrote the script, and it kind of got close, but then didn't happen, and then...
3: Didn't you guys say that Billions happened, and you guys were like, oh, well, now it's never going to happen?
4: Basically, yeah. It seemed like they probably wouldn't do two Wall Street shows, and then I think they slowly realized that our show has basically nothing to do with Wall Street. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, when Cheadle and Seth and Evan came on, then obviously they made it, because, you know, you're going to make whatever Cheeto wants to do next.
2: Talking about your executive producers, you have Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg.
4: Yeah, when they came on to direct and when Cheeto came on to star in it, then Showtime was like, yes, let's make
2: it. I mean, it's still remarkable. You hear about movies that are 10, 12 years or in development or longer, but for a series, that's not so normal.
1: I remember when we thought we were dead because Wall Street 2 had come out. Money Never Sleeps. Money Never <laughs> Sleeps, It's right. So Wall Street 2 came out. We're like, okay, we're dead. And then Wolf of Wall Street came out and we were dead. And then they bought billions and we were like, we're dead. But we kept hanging around.
2: What took you to this content, though? Because this happened when we were all a lot younger and I'm older than you guys. I remember it very well. But Black Monday, October 19th, 1987 was wild.
4: Yeah, it was the day before my ninth birthday. My dad was a commodity trader in Chicago, a soybean trader. And so he just sort of always told me crazy stories about all this shit that, I mean, he claimed that he would just sort of see on his way home and stuff. Like, as I would leave on Friday, like, waves of prostitutes would walk in and, like, all these guys would do coke, like, you know, I could see him on the other end of the floor and stuff. And (laughs) a writer quickly pointed out, like, no, sorry, you you believe that your dad just, like, happened to know about and see all this stuff in explicit detail, but did not participate in it? And I like to hold on to that. <laughs> Maybe he didn't, but who knows? But, yeah, you would tell crazy stories, and excess is always funny because it's so stupid, and the 80s, excess, particularly. We always say the movie Wall Street, which was like an Oscar-nominated drama, had a robot butler in it. I mean, if the robot butler's in the drama, then we're not going to have to stretch reality at all to be broad, because that's as broad as it gets. So you have the comedy right there, and then you have the drama and the stakes. You can lose all your money. I mean, it's the only job I can think of where you actually can lose money. Like, a lot of people can go in and not sell a car that day so they didn't make money, but very rarely do you go in and they're like, okay, we're going to take all the money you made the last three years away from your bank. Right.
1: Yeah. It felt like for our show, which tonally is admittedly uh, purposely kind of all over the place, it felt like a fun way to do something where the stakes could not be higher in a business world. And yet it's such a ridiculous, intense Pressure cooker, but in again dramas like Scarface, the guy owns a Bengal tiger. It's just insane.
2: So we know this happened in eighty seven. Eighty seven was also the year that Bonfire of the Vanities was published by Tom Wolfe. Yeah,
1: that was really influential. I, I love that book. And there's an episode of season one where they get lost in the middle of the city and it's kind of this no man's land. And that was a little bit inspired by the inciting incident, I guess you'd say, of Bonfire the Vanities, where he's driving with his mistress and they get lost in New York. And it's like they're lost in a third world country in the middle of the city. And so we thought that that would be a really cool way to kind of honor some of the inspiration.
2: Of course, Wall Street, and as you said, Wall Street 2 later, but Wall Street had come out, but this was still six years before The Wolf of Wall Street.
1: Yeah. In the second episode, we really wanted to capitalize on the comparisons to the movie Wall Street by having the Hollywood screenwriter come in and everything. And it was our way of kind of jumping all over that, but also hopefully putting it to bed a little bit. We are making fun of it and having fun with the comparisons to it and saying that more East Monroe is kind of the model for, Gordon for yeah.
2: Gordon Gecko, yeah. So you, you had started in on development in 2007. Well, I mean,
4: started in like having breakfast and being like, hey, wouldn't it be fun to write a show about <laughs> you know, Wall Street or Black Monday? But we were both doing other things separately for a long time. So it was slow development. Probably didn't go in and pitch it until like 2011 or something like that.
2: So what was the elevator
3: pitch?
4: Oh, gosh. It would have to be an elevator from like floor zero to like 1,050.
1: Because
3: if you were pitching for sure, because I know you went on they were like just just what is it David like I'm getting to it they
1: they basically (laughs) bought it to shut us the fuck up yeah (laughs) they were just like they were like if we option this will you leave
2: So when did you get it in front of Seth Rogen and his producing partner Evan Goldberg?
4: Probably when did we shoot the pilot, guys? 2018 or something or 17? 17 maybe? I don't remember. So probably about a year before that.
1: And they're such bright guys that it was really cool that like David, I think it had a meeting with Evan, right, Dave? Yeah,
4: I had a meeting just about a movie thing with Evan, and he read a few of my scripts, and that was one of them. He's like, "Oh, that was really funny. What's going on with that?" I was like, "Nothing. You guys should direct it." and he was like all right i'll bring it up to seth and seth liked it and so then it was sort of a question of showtime would do it obviously only with someone great and then don said yes
2: yeah i understand it was seth who had recommended don
3: i'm not sure i had a meeting with david nevins
2: ceo of showtime
3: yeah when he first called me he said hey i'm thinking of this show i got this show that i'm thinking about and i don't think it's right for you
2: but, he knows how to press your buttons.
3: <laughs> well, I think he was just processing his stuff out loud. He was like, but I'm just thinking about it. I was like, okay, so uh, I'll talk to you later. <laughs> and I didn't talk to him. We didn't talk again for weeks. And then he called me back and said, you know what, actually I've been thinking about it and I think maybe you would be good for this. Let's get together and, and talk about it.
2: You had just come off of several seasons of House of Lies for Showtime. Correct. Playing Marty Khan, who, while not the same as Maurice Monroe along the same lines as?
3: You know, it's dealing with, obviously, in the financial world, but completely different aspects. And he's a person with all id, Mo is all id, and no family to sort of anchor him or anything, just bananas. I think this is a true, true comedy. House of Lies was a comedy, but it had much more down notes than this has. And I think that's what David was dealing with, kind of going, is there enough of a separation? Is this something that just be sort of a redo? Is this, is this something that will work? And he was just kind of processing this out loud to me and saying, so I just wanted to let you know, I was not sure, but these are the things I was thinking about. I said, okay, well, let, let me know if anything settles in your brain. <laughs> and then he called me a few weeks later and was like, no, actually, I thought about it. I do think this could work with you. And uh, do you want to meet David and Jordan? And I said, yeah. So we kind of had a, a two-part meal slash dinner and chopped it up. Right, guys? Remember that? Unless, was it lunch? I think it was lunch. Was it lunch or dinner? I don't know. I think it started with the dinner, the
1: but I'll I'll never forget because it got me so excited. I was like, holy shit. We're going to sit down with Don Cheeto about this. And one of the first things you said, Don, was you were like, yeah, these monologues are fucking insane. And then you said, I was reading one to my wife, just being like, can I even say some of this? <laughs> like, And we had never met Bridget, and I, I had no idea. But I was like, oh, my God, Don's really reading our show up to his wife, like, concerned about how insane it is. I was like, all right, at least he, at least he's on the same wavelength as us, because I think we're a little concerned about how far we went too. Yeah. And then once
4: Don was in, we spent so much time together with him, just developing it into a character that fits him more and also gets away from anything that is similar to Marty. And it doesn't seem similar to me. I mean, especially <laughs> now. We even say Mo is in the financial world. He plays bass in a hotel band in Miami. It's pretty far away from it. Um, but yeah, I think his assessment's right is that, you know, Mo is all it and and Marty was always in control, which is basically polar opposite. But yeah, the three of us really from the beginning clicked and developed it together. And I think Don calls me one of his best friends at this point. I do. I
1: have not heard that. But.
3: Until I saw your hair. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, he's trying to boy band it. We can't be friends anymore.
1: him. <laughs> I had strange, strange
4: days day. over here.
2: I do have one question about the preparation for season opener of season two, because Don, there was a time you had the wig on, you had the goatee going. What wig? (laughs) Go ahead. And you looked in the mirror. Yes. Your reaction?
3: I just thought, I mean, it was fitting. It made sense. Obviously, Mo's trying to hide and he's on the lam. We spent uh, quite a bit of time over our hiatus talking about what it was going to (laughs) be, Coming in the writer's room, putting pictures up on the board, getting reactions, you know? Yeah, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out which iteration of Mo we thought would work. And not just who he was going to be then, but who he would then become, you know, when he's going to try to return. And what does Mo think is hot, you know, what does Moe think (laughs) is like the look that he needs to have? Because it's not just about hiding out, it's also about looking good when you're wearing (laughs) A sleeveless t-shirt band. I love the long hair so much.
1: Was there any part of you that liked how the long hair looked?
3: It grew on me, so to (laughs) 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 Uh (laughs) speak.
1: I love in the show how you deal with the long hair done so naturally that like he's fully doing like the flips and the hand coming back, (laughs) all the shit that you would do with long hair. I mean, the stuff that I still dream about. He he was doing all that so naturally. I could tell that there was a part of him at least that appreciated getting to do that. It was fun.
3: Well, like you have to make it yours, right? can't look like a, a foreign animal on top of your head. But it's, again, I think all of the stuff plays into who this insane dude is. And that, of course he would do that, you know? Of course he would go that far into that extreme and then figure out the next move should be like Lando Calrissian, you know, I should now <laughs> Billy Dee, it all fit in the, in the in the world of Black Monday for sure. And it all made sense for me for Mo, 100%.
1: It kind of helped the journey, too, because season one, he, the character takes such a strong journey. And I would say he kind of realizes that you can only walk on that tightrope for so long. You know, he really gets stabbed in the back. He gets Brutus twice at the end of season one. So it felt like we needed to start him somewhere in a new journey for season two that I'm excited to, you know, to expose to people soon.
4: And if we get a third season, I think the first thing we'll probably talk about again is the hair. how his mo <laughs> transition into like the early nineties, you know?
3: I mean you almost have it, David. You're working on it. Right now. <laughs>
0: Hello out there. (laughs) This is Jenny Curtis. I am a podcast producer at Kurt Co Media, and I am currently sitting alone in a very empty podcast studio surrounded by hand sanitizer. (laughs) And I'm recording this in an effort to reach out. It's not an easy time right now. We don't know what the day-to-day is going to look like for the next few weeks, even months. So I'm proposing something. Let's all make something together. Kurtco Media has launched a podcast called A Moment of Your Time. These are bite sized episodes, and each one features you out there. Go to kurtco.com slash a moment of your time for more information. We may have to stay apart, but let's create together.
2: So the show is called Black Monday, and the show is ostensibly about how this wild and crazy group of traders were secretly responsible for the Black Monday crash of Wall Street. But season one ends with the crash of Wall Street. At this point, you have to decide, where do we go now? And where do our characters go now?
1: Well, I think we felt it was really important to, I love mysteries. And so one of the mysteries that we didn't hit on the head on purpose is By the end of season one, we wanted people to be satisfied as far as who was behind Black Monday. I think that's definitive. I think the question for season two is, who's going down for Black Monday? If it was man-made, if it was manufactured, which is what we're positing in our alternate history timeline that might as well be real, who ultimately has to suffer the consequences of that? And that really is the back half of season two is as alliances get tested and all of that, it's kind of like, who is going to take the fall for this giant act of global terrorism mm. or f- at least financial terrorism?
4: Yeah, no plan, if that's the question. We had zero plan. I don't think we ever really expected the show to get made, period, much less get all the way through the uh, first season and get a second season. So yeah, we definitely left the second season being like, okay, when we got into the writer's room, we were just like, all right, so Mo has fled. Um, the FBI has to be probably after him. What would they be after him for? Like, And then we got to, like, well, he, he killed two people.
3: No, he didn't. He didn't. No, I'm, he didn't. Yeah. You keep saying that.
4: Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> defend your character. You know, we have a an awesome team of writers over all two seasons. You know, so many great writers and everybody just kind of pitched what they thought would be a funny place to take it. And Don pitched and Regina pitched and Andrew and Paul and everyone. And my wife pitched her hair. She said, look, the one thing I want is a princess die bouffant and whatever else, you know, is up to you. We'll take ideas from anywhere. Yeah.
1: I mean, talking about fortunate, like our writers, we have been so, uh, I mean, it's just amazing. How, when I talk about how brilliant the cast is, like the fact that we get to work with these writers uh, for two seasons is unbelievable. I could go through every name of every person now, but we got so lucky that all these writers were willing to jump in and do something with us that's so stupid.
2: Don, when you get the script, talk to us about that.
3: <laughs> Getting the
2: script. <laughs> yeah, because what they have Mo doing and
3: saying. Well, that's what a lot of the calls are before we get to the table read. I'm like, so we're going to say this tomorrow, right, guys? <laughs> we're all agreed that I'm going to say these, these certain lines. And and I tell them sometimes, you know, there's some things where I'm just like, no, we're not doing that. So <laughs> I'm like, if you guys want to step in during that part and do the lines, that's fine. But I'm not saying this. So there's always a negotiation around things, but I I will say honestly that those moments are rare. I'm usually 100% on board with everything that we're doing and wanting to push it further. And in a show like this with these characters at this time, you do have to walk a line in some ways, but if you're not leaning into some of the misogyny and some of the racism and some of the, all the isms and (laughs) ogenies that these guys are rife with, you wouldn't really be doing the time period. You wouldn't be doing it legitimate so that's a lot of it is trying to figure out you know how far can we step on that line and sometimes you don't know until you're across it and you're like oh, okay that was too far let's pull it back but we're always trying to push it
2: well that's the interesting thing is because you're doing the the late 80s with all of those excesses but you're also
3: talking about today correct and I think that's when the show is working at its optimal level that's what we're able to do is to make fun of that time but at the same time, sort of draw a line between how we got here from there and how a lot of it is circular and, and cyclical and we're not really going to get past it. Like one of the things when we were doing the research for the show, one of the books that I was reading was talking about, you know, this was sort of the era when all of these regulations were just being put in place. It was kind of the wild, wild west before people like Milken came in and did what he did. Everybody was doing it. He just did it at such a level that they went, OK, we got to do something about this. It's gone. It's too big now. And even as we can see today, you know, the one thing that you cannot excise from this process is people and people's inherent desire to get over and greed. And And if there's a way to game it, they're going to game it. So we put all these regulations in place, try to protect people, try to protect the process and not have people get robbed blind. But there will be and there will always be someone who's going to figure out a way to get around the rules and make it work for them. And it's just up to are people going to do anything about it. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what's fun about the show is to keep getting our characters in those positions where they're doing all of this stuff. And figure out now what, you know, paint them into a corner.
1: This is not a tagline, but one of the things that David and I, would always bandy about is like one of the rules of the show is kind of look how far we haven't come. Mm-hmm. And it's just seeing that, drawing that line and that parallel to now and saying that despite the 80s being years and years ago, it still feels like all of these issues are just bu- still bubbling to the surface all the time.
4: And we discover some like shocking ones. There's a joke that's coming up in a. Few episodes that's just about what are classic boys' clubs where there's not really women there, like country clubs or the boardroom of a Fortune 500 company back in the 80s, we're talking about. And we discovered that legally women weren't allowed on the Senate floor in pants until like the early 90s, <laughs> which is shocking. I mean, I was born in 78, like the 90s, I was a person. You stumble on some of that, you're like, they weren't allowed to wear pants. Women weren't allowed to wear pants on the Senate floor in. Up until like ninety-two or something like that. Like if we can't
3: see your legs, it's distracting when you're trying to get put, you know, work legislation through. (laughs) If I can't see your legs, I can't be sure you're really sincere about this bill. So crazy, yeah, you can do the correlation. Balance. Yeah, for no. sure. I get it. No, I get it. I'm, I'm just trying. I'm trying to explain it to David why that would be.
4: <laughs> so stuff like that it, that just shows you like how far we haven't come and how far.
3: Yeah. Well, who knew? I mean, aside from the point of whether or not we get more seasons or not, who knew that you know you would never be at a loss for material? Jordan said earlier. You know, we've had three Black Mondays in the last month. You're never going to run out of material in that area. No, sadly, it's true. Don, you're
2: famously an activist in a lot of causes. That seems to be a passion of yours outside of acting, outside of producing. What are the causes you're supporting today?
3: A lot of times we're trying to figure out timing on things, and it's such a 24-hour news cycle around what's happening right now with our country and you know the pandemic and always trying to figure out how to speak about climate and keep that in the forefront. And you know, as the EPA is easing more and more restrictions and everything's sort of happening behind closed doors while we're focused on this. Mm I'm trying to keep that front and center in different ways. I work with a group called the Solutions Project. I'm on the board. Mark Ruffalo sits on the board. He got me on the board and we were doing some work with the USGA around the US Open this year trying to focus on some water mitigation things and some community-facing stuff that was happening. But now that's pushed. So it's constantly trying to find the right time and way to draw attention to these issues. And we're always fighting for space because the most sensationalistic thing leads. And Unless there's a national disaster at your feet and you could point to that and show some cause and effect, it's hard to get the attention for something like climate change right now.
2: I don't know if obligation is the right word, but can you talk to us about...
3: Is there an obligation?
2: No, just using your platform.
3: I guess really at the end of the day, it's a personal thing for each individual to figure out you get in where you fit in and, and, and what their responsibility is. Are they obligated, to use your word, to, to give back once you have this ability to, to be in the spotlight and direct people's attention toward the things that are important to you? I personally feel that it is for me. And it probably comes from my parents, it probably comes from my family and always being told that it's your job, quote unquote, to to speak up when you think something's not right. Not just for yourself, but for whoever, for those who can't. And it's something that was demonstrated for me. So this happened before I had a platform. You know, I was I was mm-hmm. vocal about things before anybody gave a shit about who I was to listen to anything I had to say. So it's just consistent for me It's a continuum. But yeah, I think, and I've been very lucky to work with a lot of people who are like-minded. We started Not On Our Watch with George Clooney and Matt Damon and Brad Pitt and Jerry Weintraub. And so it's been sort of throughout my career that I've worked with, like, like I said, Mark Ruffalo working on the Solutions Project together. I've been very fortunate to work with people who do feel it is their obligation and do want to take the light that's shown on them and try to shine it on people that need the attention. And it's a more rewarding thing to do than just try to you know, cut lines at restaurants and get a bunch of perks for stuff. It's being able to actually use this to, to highlight people who've been on the front lines of these issues for a long time and are really struggling to, to get purchased. So I feel honored to be able to do it.
4: I've never understood the concept, like actors and people in Hollywood and stuff always get shit from certain people saying like, why should we listen to you just because you're an actor? Like, just because you could be in movies, that doesn't mean we have to listen to you. They've never understood the point that it's usually actors, they have access to such a huge platform, it's using their platform to get people to listen (laughs) to other people. Don or an actor usually who comes out or Joaquin Phoenix talking about uh, animal rights and things like that, they're not coming out saying do this because i think it like if you like my movies then you also yeah, have I agree to agree with my politics <laughs> you know? yeah. it's more just saying like okay this is how the word gets out and these are these are people that are trying to get their word out you pick the time when everybody's watching so that everybody's watching like it's not disrespecting that time it's that yeah you you do it when everyone's watching you know what i'm saying like it, i don't know that that always just seems so stupid to me. George Clooney is not saying, because I know about acting, I know about this.
1: It's just sharing the spotlight. There's a generosity to it.
3: Yeah, well, mm-hmm. Brad would often say, like, we can't get out of the light and they can't get in the light. Yeah. We're just trying to take that beam and refract that light and put it on people who have been doing this work in the trenches way more than we have. We're just the, we're just the lightning rod off.
2: We're all obviously... At home, staying at home, trying to stay safe during this. Any final thoughts, any final words to the audience?
3: Well, I would just like to say thank you to those that have tuned into the show and I hope that you're enjoying it. And hopefully we can be some kind of a respite during this time when we're all hopefully being responsible and hunkering down and staying a a respectful social distance away from from each other. We're going to come out of this and we're just we're just grateful that people seem to be digging what's happening and we hope you continue to do so. 100%.
4: Thank you to all the people in danger right now that are working jobs so all of us can stay
2: home. Any final thoughts, Jordan?
1: I'm not going to put it better than Don just did. I mean, talk about a beautiful sentence. I've been feeling it in my chest too, that heaviness, that gravity that we're all feeling. I read an article about this, but that they call it existential grief, that we're all just feeling this giant weight. All I hope is that we give you one or two laughs or even tougher, a gasp at a twist or something that our show can deliver. Like To me, that, that if we can do that, I'd be thrilled and delighted.
4: And it is a comedy, by the way. I, a lot of people, <laughs> for uh, whatever reason, because it's called Black Monday and it has such high level actors who can also do drama along with comedy, I think the first instinct before people watch the show was like, oh, that must be a drama. It is, in fact, a comedy. There are a lot of jokes, and if you're looking for a laugh to, like Don said, take your mind off the hell we find ourselves in, watch Black Monday on Sunday.
1: I was drinking the other night, and someone asked me to describe what making the show is like with my oldest friend or one of my oldest friends. And I said, it's kind of like we're robbing a (laughs) 7-Eleven. It feels just like I cannot believe they're letting us get away with the things that we can get away with and doing it with Don. There is just a sense of joy and freedom to it. So even if we're giving people 1% of that, I'm really appreciative too that people are digging it in that way. So thanks everybody.
2: Uh, And thanks to our guest today. Actor Don Cheadle, showrunners Jordan Cahan and David Casp from the Showtime series Black Monday. Gentlemen, stay well to our audience. Stay well, stay healthy, and join us again next time.
4: Thanks. Stay appreciate safe, it. Everybody. Take care, guys. Be safe.
3: Take care.
0: Hollywood Unscripted is created by Kurt Co Media and presented in cooperation with the Malibu Film Society. This episode was hosted by Scott Talal. With guests, Don Cheadle, Jordan Cahan, and David Kasp. Produced and edited by Jenny Curtis. Mastering by Michael Kennedy. The executive producer of Hollywood Unscripted is Stuart Halperin. The Hollywood Unscripted theme song is by Celeste and Eric Dick. Make sure to subscribe because throughout our off-season, we will be bringing you more bonus episodes of Hollywood Unscripted Stuck at Home. Stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening. Kurt Media, media for your mind.